Do you like candles? We all know that I love candles and I love the candles from Remy Moon. They are an Australian based small business and they make the best and most magical candles. All of their candles are made with high vibes, pure intentions, and each one is crafted with a little bit of Reiki healing that also suits the intention of the candle itself. All their candles are non-toxic and vegan, so they don't harm us or the animals. You can use the code SUBURBANWITCH for 15% off all of their products, and it's only for listeners of the Witch Talks podcast. Simply head to remymoon.com.au to get your candles now. Welcome to Witch Talks, the series for spiritual seekers, witches, and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, professional tarot reader, astrologer, and witch, and I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favorite witches. Good afternoon, good morning, good night, whatever it is, whenever you're tuning in, I am grateful that you're here listening to me once again. We have a really fun episode today. And I didn't get a chance to ask all the questions I wanted. So I will absolutely be inviting our guest back again for another future episode. Now, if you caught our last one, you may have noticed that I totally forgot about my new segment, which was (laughs) Hannah Help Me. And I scheduled everything and remembered at the last minute, did a little poll on Instagram, like, do I I need to go back and redo it all? And everyone said, just do it next time. So here we are. And I'll try not to forget for future episodes because I think it's a really fun segment please let me know what you think of it. So here we go. Hannah, help me. Today's question comes in from one of my Patreon supporters in Dural, and they have said, can you please recommend some great books for a newbie witch? Hell yes, I can. Absolutely. Now I'm one of those people that I love nuance. So I'm not just going to be like, okay, everyone should read this. No, 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 no. I'm like, all right witchcraft, witches. That is a whole kettle of fish. There is not just one type of way to do it. And there are so many aspects of what makes people witches and what makes people part of the craft and all this jazz. So I'm going to give you a few. I do have a blog post on some books that I recommend, and there are some videos on my YouTube channel on the books that I love. So I'm going to use a few of those so you can like reference them. They'll be linked in the description box as well. If you want to go watch that or read that um, and look at like, oh my gosh, she said something, but she was talking so fast. I don't know what she said. So go to those resources. It will all be there. So you guys might know I am a self-professed bibliophile and I always have at least two books on the go at any one time, along with a mile high pile of books I want to read. (laughs) So I've read quite a few. I do have book reviews for specific books on the website as well on my blog. So jump over there and have a read. All right. Now, one book I think everybody should at least have a copy of if you perform any form of tarot, if you read the tarot for yourself, for others, 78 Degrees of Wisdom by the late Rachel Pollack, absolute must on your shelf. I cannot give this book enough praise. I recommend this for even beginners, just as a little reference and just to sort of spend a little bit of time on each card. But it is really good for intermediate readers and those wishing to advance their studies quite seriously. I will also suggest if you are the type of witch that wants to do psychic stuff, the Green Book of Psychic Development by my own mentor, C.B. Bjork. It is small. It is a thin little book and it just has all the basics that anyone could need. It's a it's a very entry level one on energy work and psychic stuff. 
I understand these aren't how to be a witch books and I don't think people always need how to be a witch books but I do recommend if you have questions about the afterlife which I think if you are a witch of course we often work with spirits and it has it has to come up at some point what happens right especially if you do any form of mediumship that sort of a thing now coming from my religious trauma which is obviously where I bring everything through this was a big thing for me right I had heaven and hell that was that was what happened right so how can mediums what are they calling people in heaven what about those people that went to hell? like how does it work took a while to get my head around it right but one book that was pivotal in that is many lives many masters by brian l weiss 100% recommend it changed me like it changed my perception of the afterlife my ideas around reincarnation were challenged and it's an absolute must for anyone who's interested in past past lives past lives i want a past life (laughs) past lives the afterlife and psychology and psychiatry like it's 10 out of 5 stars love it if you're looking for books that tell you how to do spells, there's tons out there. Ones that I like and that I have used are ones like The Book of Herb Spells by Sherilyn Darcy. I think it's a wonderful little addition to any green or kitchen witch's shelf. Perfect for beginners and intermediate and whatever you see yourself as. It does include an introduction to spell work and correspondences, and then it groups all the spells by categories for you. And it's this tiny little gorgeous book with beautiful illustrations, the whole vibe, very aesthetically pleasing. And a couple other ones that are a little bit more on just the witchy side. One book, I have one more chapter to go and I have no qualms about wholeheartedly recommending it to people. And just as I say that, the rain has just pelted down and you're probably going to hear it. No, I'm so sorry. Oh, is it stopping? It might be stopping. Oh, the joys. So the book that I am almost finished reading is called Baba Yaga's Book of Witchcraft, Slavic Magic from the Witch of the Woods. It's by Madame Pomeda. I'm not Slavic. I have no Slavic heritage. Most of my heritage is Dutch, Irish, and Scottish, and English. However, oh, I've got to get Madame Pomeda on the podcast because the way this book is set up is amazing. It gives you the folklore, it gives you the myths and legend behind why spells were made and how they came to be. It's really, really beautiful. It's beautifully done. I think it will inspire every single witch that reads it and just give you a really great look at a well-rounded historical folkloric practice. I don't even know if that's <laughs> if that's a thing, but I love it. It's a great book. Intuitive Witchcraft by Australia Taylor, another really, really great one. Not everyone is into the intuitive stuff, right? I, I get that. I figure most of my audience probably is. There's tons of traditional craft books out there. I'm not a traditional witch, so I don't read a lot of those, um, but you can. <laughs> but intuitive witchcraft is very good. And the other one, if you have any um, religious trauma, as you'd know, Changing Paths by Yvonne Abro is wonderful. Highly, highly recommend. As always, jump on over to my website to read any book reviews of other ones that I might not have mentioned here. I have so many more on my list. You can always go and check out my Amazon wish list, which is always tagged in the bottom of these episodes. And in that, you'll see the books that I want to read, which is not an endorsement, but it's like a sort of endorsement. Obviously, I give my final two cents afterwards, and there are books that I'm like, absolutely not. No, no, no. Oh, that's a good one. Let's talk about books to stay away. 
from. Stay away from Abraham Hicks books. Stay away from A Course in Miracles. Stay away. And this may rub some feathers the wrong way. I'm going to say stay away from Jane Hardwick Collings. Dislike her books. And, and stay away from Witch by Lisa Lister. Incredibly turfy. And we know I'm not about that. Trans women are women. End of story. And if you guys listening have a question, feel free to just jump into my DMs and be like, hey, Hannah, I have a question for the podcast. Or you can send me an email to suburbanwitchery at gmail.com. Or jump on to one of my upcoming classes. The next one I have is going to be in the middle of this month, April 2023. The next upcoming class is how to be psychic. And this is a class where I teach you how to activate your psychic senses. Like I believe everyone is psychic. Yes, even you. And I'm going to be explaining the common blocks, concerns and misconceptions that come up when people are starting their psychic journey or even when they're far along it as well. I'm going over things like the difference between intuition and anxiety, how to trust yourself and silence the Debbie doubter within. We also touch on things like psychic hygiene, the difference between the psychic clairs, how to connect long distance with people energetically. And of course, my favorite topic, ethics. (laughs) So if you're going to be doing any form of psychic work, ethics is absolutely crucial. And I would love to see you there. Let's jump into today's episode. Hey everyone, in this episode, I am chatting with Nicholas Pearson, an expert in the field of all things crystals. He has authored six books on crystals, plus a book on flower essences and another one on Reiki as well. He blends the scientific with the spiritual, the philosophical with the practical and the mundane with the mystical. And I am so looking forward to sharing his work and his wisdom with you today. So let's jump into it. He is joining us via Zoom all the way from Florida. Hey, Nicholas, welcome to the show. Well, hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me on. I've, I've been looking forward to this for a while. I have been too. It's very exciting. Um, I actually felt a little bit of pressure because I was like, what crystals am I going to wear today? And as I'm talking and introducing you in, I've realized I've broken my own cardinal rule and I've worn a crystal bracelet, which I don't usually do when I'm on podcasts because it makes noise. <laughs> so I'm going to have to take it off. But I am wearing a lovely Shungai bracelet. And that was that's one of my new my new faves, but it can sit next to me. You're okay over there. <laughs> uh, if it makes you feel better, I have some shungite right here as well. It is a beautiful one. It's not a crystal I've been drawn to until recently. So it's funny how we ebb and flow with different ones that we want to work with at different times. Do you find that? Oh, totally. Even this many decades into my practice, I still find things like, you know, you, you brush it aside. It's such a common rock. You, you got to know it. Yeah. 25 years ago. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, this is my new thing. This is a thing I'm going to focus on for the next however long. And I feel like they, they have a way of announcing themselves when they're the right ally for the right time. And, you know, thankfully I have a big enough toolbox that there's probably the right ally there. I don't need to rush out and buy more. I will anyway, but I don't (laughs) need to. Yep. I know exactly what you mean. I find it really interesting. Um, There's a few crystals where for a long time, I may have just been really I guess, turned off on certain ones, in particular, Desert Rose. I used to think it was really ugly. I was like, I don't understand the fascination. People love it. Nope. Yuck. Never having it. Don't like it. Just a real not vibing with energy. And then one day out of the blue, I walked into a store, saw a piece sitting there and just went, that is the most beautiful crystal I have 
ever seen. What was I thinking? I have to have that. And I purchased it and I was like obsessed for months, absolute months. And it was such a bizarre thing to witness in myself, this literal almost like repulsion, like I don't need that, I don't like it, to suddenly like actually I need that and I have to have it right this moment. Yeah, I, I sometimes say that our our deepest healing allies, our deepest teachers in the mineral world are often those we feel a little uncomfortable around or have a really strong aversion to at some point. And it's it's not a universal rule, but oftentimes I feel like those stones that do make us feel a little uncomfortable for whatever reason hold a really great wisdom that's just so far outside our normal realm, our normal internal experience that's outside the history of our soul, we could say that it represents those lessons we have yet to learn. Mm -hmm. And it can take time before we're ready for that. So I have a few in my life that you know, intellectually I loved, but energetically like to wear, it was, it was like painful. Mm. And we've, we've since made peace with that. We are friends now. Um, but I, I find it fun when people arrive at that aha moment on their own. Mm -hmm. It's funny when you're talking about that, I almost, um, find the same thing with astrology in terms of when people come into astrology, they'll often have one sign usually due to an X or something that they're quite avert, you know, there's an aversion to it. Like, oh no, cannot deal with, for me, it was Scorpio. I was like, absolutely not. Nope. Don't like that. Until I discovered astrology and found out it was my moon sign. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, that's me. Am I what? And you have to go through that deep healing process to almost like reintegrate. There's like this deep lesson there. Why was I, what was it about this that I didn't like? What was it about myself that I wasn't liking? where was it about myself that I wasn't aligned and looking in our chart because we have every single sign in our birth chart. So looking in our chart as to where that sits, that can give us a lot of information. So it's really intriguing how the world throws those things at us wherever we go. It's like mirroring us. Yeah. Hidden lessons, hidden gems along mm -hmm. the way. Now question, do you classify yourself as a witch? Would you use that term for yourself? I do. I wear a lot of hats. So it's, it's one of several hats that you might find me wearing at the same time. But I consider myself a practicing witch and a cultist, um, just as much as people probably know me for like the, the healy feely, you know, sparkly stuff. I've, you know, some of my practice has some tooth and claw in it, like like any witch would have. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I appreciate being able to look at rocks through both lenses. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. And then you've also got that scientific lens as well which is almost that third aspect that comes in it's this beautiful little triangle you've brought in yeah and that that really kind of describes the the breadth or the scope of of how I approach my work really through all three kind of things at once and each one informs the other mm, that's beautiful so I wanted to pull a card for you today if you're open to it it's something I'm doing on this season where I just pull a card so it shows people a, if you've never had a tarot reading or if people are reading and they want to learn and see how other people interpret, it can just be such an eye-opening experience to hear someone else get a reading. So are you open to that? Absolutely. Awesome. Now I've picked a deck that I just felt was right for you. Um, it is called the Radiant Wilds Tarot. Have you ever seen this one? I have not. Do you read tarot yourself? Not really. I have a few decks, but it's it's not my strength. That's cool. So this one is like very, ooh, if I can get it out of the box probably. It's just for whatever. <laughs> I'm very professional, I promise. 
So this deck is, I should say that when I'm not throwing them around, making lots of noise. This deck is really different. I find it interesting. Um, it's very deserty. It's meant to be like desert dreamscapes. It's just fun. It's interesting. So, and it has beautiful gold edging. Oh, just gorgeous. Anyways, do you have a question that you would like to ask of the tarot? Hmm. You know, nothing in particular comes to mind. So let's just see what message comes out for us. All right, let's have a little look. Do you read oracle cards or anything, or do you prefer other divinatory methods if you use any? Uh, I mean, these days I, I don't think I do as much divination as a witch really ought to, but I have a couple of oracle decks that I use that are crystal themed. Uh, one of them was created by a mentor of mine before she retired. So that was like my go-to set for the longest time. Yeah, I've got um, Ashley Levy's ones. I have the Crystal Grid Oracle deck and Crystal Moon Oracle deck. Both of those, is that what it's called? Can't see it from here, but yes, both of those are beautiful. Have you seen her decks? I have. Ashley's one of my dearest friends in the world. I love her. Oh, she's beautiful. Um, her podcast actually helped me so much in getting myself into crystals. And I think because her approach is very light and it's very healing and it's very uplifting. And for me coming from this religious trauma where my mum used to, you know, smash a rock out of my hand in the fairy shop going, that is got de demons in it. You know, it's demonic. Don't do it. And so Ashley really helped me heal that by just being like, no, these are light. These are beautiful. These are healing. They're here to help us. So she's wonderful. Love her. She really is. All right. Let's pull a card. Which one is jumping out today? The rest aside. All right. So if we are watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see this. If not, I will describe the card to you as well. So this one here is the Eight of Pentacles. Now the card image itself has, it's very orange, yellow, amber, deserty tones, exactly what you would expect in the desert. There are three crescent moons. There is a big golden sun, lots of sand, and then these big sort of sand dunes with like ripples in them. And they're the kind of ripples that you see when the wind blows over the sand dune and it makes these this almost water-like effect, which is really interesting in this card. And there is a figure there. And what we can actually see is this figure is basically carving into these sand dunes. So it's almost that meditative, you know, those Zen gardens that you do the, the, the raking or you might put patterns in, or there are a lot of practices all over the world with sand and making mandalas and all sorts of things, this really deep, focused task and what the message behind this is and it's really intriguing and this is why I think people need to really try stepping out of using just one deck or using just the Rider Waite Smith deck because the Rider Waite Smith is great it has amazing symbolism in it and it is really good to know all of those traditional meanings and the traditional meaning of the eight of pentacles is hard work right it is good productive work you know Monday to Friday busy all of that stuff. But when I get this, when I see this card with this deck, what comes through instead is the guidance for you here is, yes, you might be busy, but you also need to be almost like make yourself busy doing something that gives your brain space, if that makes sense. Those sorts of things where it's not sitting down doing a meditation where you're trying to be quiet or move those thoughts out of your brain something where it's a task that turns into something meditative and it is a task that keeps you busy 
you have to do it, but there's no real meaning to it, if you know what I mean by that. So taking some time to fill your time with something that is just for you and just so that you can move through that space. How does that feel for you? It seems like that's the one thing I neglect to put on my to-do list. So make some space in there and just be like Zen garden or, you know, adult coloring in, or there's sometimes you'll see mentors in uh, fantasy films and things and they make the, what was it in like karate kid and it's like put the jacket on the hook that over and over and then but that teaches us something right something like that where you're like I don't understand the purpose and sometimes there is no longer purpose and it might be fill the bucket up take it over there empty it fill it up again take it back empty it something like that so pick your thing do your thing but just carve out a little bit of time so that you're not just in the busy 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 work aspect of every day but you're still bringing that busyness vibe to yourself as well like squeezing yourself in there well, thank you. You're very welcome. So I wanted to know, firstly, can you tell me and our listeners how you fell into the world of crystals? What is your origin story? So it it goes back to early childhood. Uh, as early as I can remember, and probably earlier yet, I was the kid who picked up rocks everywhere. Uh, you know, at the seashore, I'm, I'm from a coastal town. So my grandparents took me to the beach all the time, but also in not so glamorous places like parking lots and shopping malls and other things. If, if there was a piece of stone that spoke to me, I, I, I couldn't help myself. It was more than compulsion. It was this deep recognition, something felt familiar about it. So my grandfather in his infinite wisdom had probably observed this happen, I don't know, 500 times. And he finally gives me a piece of quartz from Hot Springs, Arkansas. That specimen is still in my collection to this day. It's on the top shelf of the one and only glass case that I have for fine minerals. And suddenly this really inert part of the landscape was transfigured rock became more than just this humble material that surrounds us, but became something noble and luminous. And the, the, the regularity of those faces and angles, there, there was something magic to it. It was like I was holding something right out of a fairy tale. At this same point in my life, I grew up in, for the first several years of my life, in a single parent, single child household. So it was just me and my dad. And we would go to the library on weekends. Other families had their kind of We'll say religious institutions they visited. We went to the Cathedral of Learning instead. Um, and one week it might be folklore and fairy tales. I've always loved those things. Hence, you know, the Little Mermaid is with me here in my mug. Um, but I also loved the natural sciences. So my dad had a science background, and he he would encourage whatever I wanted to learn as long as I was learning. Things were great. So, you know, one week it might be a book of folklore and the next week it might be, you know, Egyptian mythology and then it could be geology or botany or whatever I could get my hands on that was age appropriate or even not so age appropriate. I, I frequently read far beyond what people thought I probably ought to start with. And pretty early on, I noticed that, you know, all these different pantheons and, you know, sets of symbols shared by everyone all over the world described the same natural phenomena that the sciences were describing and they just couched them in metaphoric and symbolic terms rather than things we can quantify. So I, I made peace very early on with science and spirituality, both just trying to help us find sense in the world. 
And that really came to a head as I continued my mineral collection when I started exploring the folklore and mythology of gemstones. And then I discovered that this wasn't just something relegated to the past. It wasn't just uh, a piece of history. People still worked with crystals for therapeutic and, and mystical purposes. So that really led me right into the world of crystal healing and gemstone magic and uh, a few kind of seminal books in my early days kind of spurred me to continue learning and growing. And I was just as fascinated by the science behind it as I was the raw spiritual experiences that I was having, um, you know, for, for lack of having a mentor or a teacher or any sort of structured learning. I just had to do it all myself. I'd devour a book, practice all the things in it that I could, and then see what happened. And then that would lead me to a new place over and over. And eventually, uh, I was really fortunate. I went to university to study music education. I play the French horn even to this day. I just don't play it as well as I used to. And I was, as the university puts it, I was randomly assigned to work at the Earth Science Museum on campus. I registered late. I didn't get into any of like the um, work study stuff that involved the music lab or library or the performance venues. So I was stuck in the dusty old museum and I didn't even realize this building existed on campus. So I, I marched in with already having a love of rocks and minerals, already having taught my first very few classes on crystal healing. Um, and you know, within a couple of weeks, they gave me unrestricted access to the collection within reason. I used to be able to check out specimens like they were books in a lending library, um, as long as they came back in the same condition, of course. And so long as what I did with the public in those four walls was under the veneer of science, I could do anything that I wanted. In fact, I was encouraged to learn about anything else I wanted to involving rocks and minerals. So I had such an amazing experience that I actually defected from the arts and uh, declared a new major in science. And one thing led to another. So I never actually finished either degree and instead went to corporate America. But those formative years, having access to things that never would I have been able to lay my hands on as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old, um, that was more magic than I think I've I've ever had in my life at my disposal. And it was just incredible. And I since love, then, I love that. And it sounds like there are these little breadcrumbs from the universe kind of like pushing you into <clears throat> this, this area that you're obviously meant to be in. Yeah, it's... It, it was my avocation for a long time. I did it for uh, my my mental and spiritual and sometimes physical health. When I worked for corporate America, I had a demanding gig. And, um, you know, I did it because it brought me joy. I did it because I enjoyed collecting. I did it because it gave me something to do with my personal practice, my spiritual practice. Uh, and then, you know, it eventually came back around and now it's my full-time focus. That's so good. That's so wonderful. And like, is there a difference? So I, I know there probably is. I use them interchangeably, but is there a difference between crystal, rock, mineral, and stone? Is that something? Because obviously you've got this science background. Um, I'm sure you had specific times when you were supposed to use them, whereas I find in the spiritual witchy community, we kind of just use any term that we want. You know, colloquially, nobody's going to be upset if if you use these terms interchangeably. I still do because you got to meet people where they're at. Um, but there are actually fairly rigid definitions for a few of these terms and then softer definitions for others. So let's start with crystal. A crystal usually is a solid substance. Maybe we'll circle back around to that. But um, crystals are solid substances with a regular composition. In other words, it's always the same ingredients. 
that form together in a repeating and symmetrical structure. We call that structure a crystal lattice. So examples of crystals could be, you know, quartz or calcite or diamond or sugar or salt or snowflakes. They're all crystals. A mineral is very specifically a naturally occurring inorganic crystal. So it's still got the regular composition, still got the regular structure, but now mother nature has to make it and it has to be made by non-living processes. Um, when minerals come together, we get rocks. So um, we would consider like a formal definition. Um, uh, a rock is an aggregate of one or more minerals. Another way we could look at it by comparison is elements are the building blocks of minerals. Minerals are the building blocks of rocks. You can have a mineral like native sulfur that is one ingredient. It's just sulfur all the way through. Just like you can have a rock that is one, one meta ingredient, we'll say, like limestone, which is pure calcite, calcium carbonate. Uh, you can also have minerals and rocks that are a lot more complex. The main difference between a rock and a mineral is that rocks are variable. You can pick up two samples of granite from two different parts of the world, and they have different compositions and textures and um, patterns all of it within you know, the kind of broader umbrella, the parameters that we put on those ratios of ingredients, but then you can have extras. Whereas quartz anywhere in the world always has the same chemical composition and the same structure at the, the most fundamental level. Optically, like to look at it, you might see a lot of variation between a piece of agate and uh, citrine, but they're still fundamentally quartz. They're still fundamentally the same mineral species. Mm -hmm. now, I was about quartz... to ask the difference in terms of like color, because we can get citrine from all different places in the world. And sometimes they look very different, even though they're all citrine, but technically that's not a big variance in the way that you're talking, correct? It's not. You know, uh, a few strain molecules could be all that it takes to have the difference in saturation. Uh, something like citrine gets its color from small amounts of things like aluminum and lithium, sometimes from iron compounds, but that's slightly more complicated. And after, after the quartz forms with these stray molecules present, um, it's still colorless. And then there'll be a little bit of background radiation. So something in this geological environment breaks down, has a radioactive half-life and reduce, produces this little bit of ionizing radiation, which like bumps those molecules, those little aluminum and lithium inside. Um, and that slowly changes the color of the quartz from transparent to that kind of golden, brown, warm, honey color that we associate with citrine. Um, same would be true for amethyst, which has iron bumped by the radiation. I was just about to ask. So my understanding, and I am not a, I'm not that scientifically minded. My understanding was that amethyst and citrine were exactly the same, but citrine had just been heated to a higher temperature. Or is that only man-made? Yeah, so this is a persistent myth that's out there. And I think it started in good faith in like the 1980s, early 90s or so when the heat-treated citrine was really prevalent on the market, you, you were hard-pressed in a metaphysical shop to find natural citrine really anywhere unless you went to a specialist. Um, so, you know, people understood that one was pr produced by heat-treating the other. So I think uh, particularly the prominent authors of the era supposed that must be true for the natural stuff and kind of carried that through. And there is some natural citrine that is colored by iron ions, a lot of it by like a hydrated form of iron or an oxidized form of iron that actually forms interstitially, which is just means that instead of being part of the crystal structure, it's between the crystal structure. Um, 
Amethyst, on the other hand, has a little bit of iron that gets incorporated. So some of this silica is replaced by a special kind of iron compound. Um, so you just substitute one puzzle piece for another. It doesn't fit very well, so it bends the bonds in a slightly different shape. And when that's activated by that irradiation, um, that's when it transforms from uh, colorless to something in the kind of purple-violet end of the spectrum. Whereas most natural citrine is caused by varying amounts of lithium and aluminum plus that ionizing radiation. Other forms of quartz don't necessarily require that um, radioactivity to initiate the color. Um, you know, red quartzes are just caused by iron oxide crystals at a microscopic level. Um, rose quartz has fibers of another mineral kind of spread throughout it. Um, but in those two particular instances, um, that's how we get it. And, and if you take most samples of hematite, or I'm sorry, most samples of um, amethyst from around the world and you heat treat them, they do turn citrine colored. There are some oddballs that don't though. Some will turn green and some will just lose their color. So you really have to know the material you're working with, the ideal temperature to fire it at, how long it should stay at that temperature, how quickly it needs or slowly it needs to be heated up and cooled down to maintain the whole thing. So the people who actually do this kind of treatment really have to know their stuff. And I know a lot of people get turned off by uh, amended and treated and synthetic and simulated stones. Um, and, you know, given the choice, I'll take a natural citrine any day. But I still appreciate the skill that goes into giving us that substitute. Mm. Do my understanding as well with uh, citrine was that it doesn't grow in clusters like amethyst does. Is that correct as well, or am I misinformed? So it is a widespread belief that it will not form in clusters, and I think uh, with more nuance we can make this true. We just have to put some qualifiers on it. In places where we tend to find amethyst, like. Uh, Brazil and Uruguay, for example, you are hard pressed to find citrine that grows in that same kind of druse, that same kind of cluster shape that the amethysts frequently do because they don't form in the same geological environment. There are a few other places in the world where you can find clusters of, we'll say, similar profile, but they're not on the same matrix and they, they really do look quite different to the natural material. I've got a fun very small cluster of uh, Congo citrine that has the same kind of general shape, what we call a crystal habit, as your typical amethyst cluster would, but it's attached to a completely different kind of rock. It grew in a very different kind of environment, but most natural citrine will look quite different. Mm -hmm. oh, that's so fascinating. You are teaching me so much and I really appreciate that. That's really great. <laughs> it's my pleasure. So with um, one other thing I want to ask when you were talking about crystals and then minerals and rocks, I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you said calcite is a crystal, but then you also said calcite is a rock. Or was that so, types? So calcite is a constituent of a rock called limestone, ah. uh, among other kinds of rocks as well. So um, calcite is a, a mineral. So we know that it's got a, a discrete composition. CaCO3. So it's those same ingredients in the same proportions all the time. Uh, you know, we get variations in color because imperfections happen, just like with our lives. Our lives are more colorful because imperfections happen. Um, and if we see a single crystal of calcite, then we've got a, a mineral. 
if we see a cluster, you know, same kind of thing. But when it compacts into a mass of crystals so small we can't discern them, or even larger platy ones, but they're all in this big kind of grainy mass, then we have a rock in the case of chalk or limestone or even marble. Marble is just metamorphosed limestone. So that's an instance of a rock made out of just one ingredient. That one ingredient is a single mineral. Um, and it is crystalline, but it's not a single crystal. It's you know, millions of tiny crystals that have all kind of locked together. Um, it's it's easier to see the difference if we look at something like granite. Mm -hmm. So if you have a beautiful polished granite countertop, depending on where it comes from, there's a good chance you're going to find little hexagonal shapes inside. Those are cross sections of quartz crystals. When it was cut and polished, if it was cut in the right direction, you'll see the quartz inside it. So we can identify this one mineral inside the greater rock. So Elements make up minerals, minerals make up rocks. That was amazing. But also, if someone has a granite bench top, can they use that, the quartz in that, like a crystal, like put something near it on it, use it to, I use, I use quartz to um, amplify things. Maybe they want to amplify a tarot reading, do it on their granite bench top. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a thing that humankind has done, well, since before Homo sapiens. We've we've had an intimate relationship with stone for, by some ep estimates, upwards of like 450,000 years, according to some archaeological data. So we've been working with rock and mineral alike since, I mean, since we were here, since the start of it all. And a big part of my practice lately has been kind of working to We'll say subvert the trend towards consumerism and capitalism and crystal healing. Maybe we'll circle back around to this as well. But I've got a um, question that'll come into that, I'm sure. Perfect. But like you can't really, by by normal standards, practice crystal healing unless you somehow participate in those systems, right? You have to buy your tools. Mm -hmm. And the the nicer you want your practice to be in theory, or so the internet would tell us, the more we got to spend on our tools. But that hasn't historically always been the case. Yes, gems have always been related to like prestige and power and things, but rocks are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And for the majority of human history, rocks were the tools we used, not necessarily fine gemstones made from, you know, discrete mineral species. So absolutely tap into that granite bench top, use that bit of brick that's made from laterite soil, um, feel the, the limestone beneath your feet if you're in a place like I am, pick up that piece of flint from the riverbed or the parking lot and use that as your magical ally. And then we don't necessarily have to keep you know, playing the game of consumerism. Mm -hmm. I, I love buying things. If you looked at my chart, you'd see all the Capricorn there. You'd be like, oh yeah. I was yeah, going to ask I, if you have to have Capricorn because yeah. <laughs> Just quite a lot coming off you. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so, and that's that's well and good, but I'm also really excited when like I was just out in the Sonoran Desert and I I brought home rocks that I found in the desert respectfully and mindfully, so I didn't disrupt things and not a whole lot. Um, and I'm going to the English countryside next month, and we're gonna do the same thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna just have this love affair with rocks mm. because they have power too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think. Um, a lot of witchcraft, there is a lot of witchcraft law on uh, rocks being a part of that and uh, rocks receiving um, offerings, like people would give offerings to rocks. Uh, they symbolise earth, obviously, uh, but them being able to grant or help you with a petition and those sorts of things as well and seeing them as sentient 
I mean, if if anyone has any form of animism in their practice, they will see everything as having a spirit and having a life of its own in its own unique way. And I think, you know, rocks are just as much like that as anything else, really. For sure. As as much as it sounds like I'm I'm very left-brained and very scientific all the time, I I still consider myself to be somewhat of a feral animist. Like, let's just talk to the spirit of things and see where we go from there. And that is so well attested in the historical record when it comes to rock and stone, but also to the landscape itself. Because what is the substrate in the landscape? Mm. But rock, the, the largest component of the landscape is rock. And unless, of course, we're over the water and then it's just very, very, very far down. Um, so you know, there's this, there's this, we'll say small stream in academic world um, of, of geomythology that looks at what they call geomyths or myths that describe the epistemology, the origin stories of landscapes. And they're often inspirited. They're often full of either ancestors or gods or spirits or other kinds of things. And I think those get preserved in early modern and medieval lore from you know, truly the ancient practice of just listening to the spirits of the land. And sometimes the geomyths are clearly way too poetic to describe a, a literal act that took place. And other times you're like, this event took place several million years ago. How does this culture know exactly what happened? Sure, we've personified things a little bit, but but they they got the story pretty darn right. And it's because they listened to the stones. It's absolutely because all they had to do was treat them as equals and listen. There's wisdom there. And I love, I don't know what your chart looks like, but you've said there's a bit of Capricorn and Capricorn, one of their, I think, superpowers. If we see the uh, the way Capricorn is presented as a mythical sea goat, right, like a goat mermaid, that is because they can navigate the two realms, the mystical and the practical. They're really, really adept at that. And I think that's just your entire vibe. That's exactly what you're doing. You are navigating the mystical and the practical, the scientific and this spiritual world. It's it's phenomenal. Well, thank you so much. It's really nice. Now, I wanted to ask as well, which crystal do you think, and I'm using that term crystal broadly, which do you think gets a bad rap in the community? What's the one that people seem to, um, you know, talk down about the most that you're like, no, it doesn't really deserve that. Oh gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, okay. So I'm, I'm going to pick an easy target. This is low hanging fruit, but I think something that has bad PR, not always a bad mm -hmm. rap per mm -hmm. se, but not, not effective stories being told about it is Moldavite and really wow. It's always been sensationalized. You know, Moldavite became popular in the metaphysical movement in the 1980s. The first book devoted to it was published in 1988. So this is nothing exactly new. I mean, new in the big picture, but not in the modern kind of spiritual revival. Um, and in 2020, thanks to the advent of TikTok and a whole bunch of uncertainty in the world, um, this stone kind of rose to meteoric fame again, pun intended. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Moldavite was created by... A, a meteoritic event something like 16 million years ago um, and, and is currently found mostly in the land surrounding the Vatava River, which was once called the Moldova River, so the Moldau River, hence Moldavite. Um, but uh, it's this natural glass. It is not the meteorite. 
it is the byproduct of the meteorite hitting the earth mm -hmm. and has this very kind of transformative quality to it because soil, rock, normal stuff got transformed by this massive event. I mean, it got hit so hard that it was thrown maybe even up into the outermost reaches of the atmosphere. Some people theorize even farther than that and then rained back down. And the heat from that movement, the speed with which it moved, the force of that impact turned it into glass. And by falling back down and, and hitting it, it cooled so quickly that it couldn't crystallize. So it's it's non-crystalline. And, you know, in, in the TikTok age, being sensational gets you engagement. And I think things are done for the sake of engagement that then get taken at face value when they shouldn't be. And so we start to see the story grow and evolve and be blown out of proportion. So, you know, people feel like Moldavite is responsible for everything from helping them get their dream job to being dumped by their boyfriend to the pets running away, loved ones dying in car wrecks and all these other kinds of things. And, you know, I have, I have a couple of things to say about that. Um, you know, first and foremost, and I will say this one blue in the face, correlation is not causation. I was just I thinking that. I was like, if he doesn't say it, I'm saying it. <laughs> So did you get Moldavite and did this thing happen? Sure, that's a sequence, but that's not necessarily a causative one. I wore a blue shirt today and it didn't rain. Does that mean my attire choice is the reason we had the weather we did here in Central Florida? No, it's Central Florida. This is what we get this time of year. No surprise. So it's assigning value above and beyond that causal sphere of influence. And when we do that, we take power away from ourselves, actually. It means that you have no agency in your life. And, and our magical spiritual practice should be doing the opposite. You know, instead of finding that scapegoat, we we put all the blame onto, like, take blame where it is due. And and truthfully, as, as unspiritual as this sounds, um, stuff just happens sometimes. Sometimes the spiritual reason... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes the spiritual reason is that it just happened. Like... You didn't sneeze because there was something mystical. It was because there was pollen in the air because it's springtime and the oak is in bloom, like, you know, just whatever it might be. Um, and then the the other piece behind it is that owning a crystal is not sufficient for initiating change in your life. And if it were, I would have to do nothing at all with my life right now. Everything would be self-sufficient because my my rocks would take care of everything. And that's that's not how any spiritual practice works. Mm -hmm. You don't buy the candle and the spell works. You actually have to work with the candle. You have to put energy into it. You can't even just blindly light it. So sure, you can have that moldavite and stick it in your pocket and go about life. Is it exerting an influence? To some degree, yes. But getting your tool, whether it's a crystal or anything else, is like kind of like having a gym membership. You can have the swankiest gym possible, but if you never show up and put in the work, nothing about your wellness changes. Mm -hmm. So you can buy the most expensive, exotic, gemmiest, most flawless stone that there is, but if you never actually engage with it on a conscious level, it's just the gym membership that you never use. Mm -hmm. So um, it's if that is what's happening in people's lives, of course, you're going to forego the idea of causation and go into correlation because you want to have the same sensational stories everyone else has. And so that, that really got blown out of proportion. And I think Moldavite is wonderful. I also think quartz is wonderful. I think calcite is great. You could certainly make a lot of change happen with barite or verisite. Uh, one is not inherently better than the other. And when we buy into this idea that these high vibration stones, 
term I really dislike, um, are the way to go because they're better than, then, then we are playing into the same power dynamic that we see elsewhere in the world. And that's what we should be undoing. We should be decolonizing our practice, not further subjugating ourselves to a kind of spiritual materialism and spiritual colonization, because that's counterproductive in so many ways. Just jumping back there, you you mentioned um, the high vibration part. Does so? Uh, there are like images that get spread around quite frequently around things like quartz that it literally vibrates at a really high rate and can melt ice faster than your hand. Is there truth in that? Well, I mean, yes, but it's not the whole story. Um, the mouse to my computer, if I look at any one of the atoms that it's made out of, is also in a state of constant change and flux. And the um, you know atomic makeup has this electron cloud of probability, and those electrons move faster than the speed of light. They do. So yes, quartz does that, but so does literally everything else. So when we see those memes, what we see is something that is complete and utter I'll say pseudoscience. That's nicer than the word I want to use. Just out of um, context. <laughs> yeah, it, it it makes us feel good. It makes us mm. feel powerful and mystical, but but it's not a helpful thing. Um, I I believe that we can look at a model that borrows from physics and kind of filters it through some metaphorical stuff. We can't have a one-for-one -one comparison because we're talking about subtle energy. By its very nature, we can't measure it. That's why it's subtle. Otherwise, we'd just call it energy. And there would be some scale and some piece of equipment that could measure it definitively in a repeatable way. We can't do that with crystals yet. Does that mean we can't demonstrate their effects? No, it just means we have to be really mindful about how we find them, how we try to test that. And I think of spellcraft, I think of healing a lot like designing experiments. We've got to isolate variables. We got to, you know, think about what the factors are and and truly kind of strip things down to the area that we're focusing on and then carry out our experiment, which could be your spell. It could be your laying on of stones. It could be empowering that piece of jewelry to carry with you through the day. And then we collect data. It's not quantitative in most cases. It's qualitative. What is my experience after this? And the more we do it, the more qualitative data we've got. Um, I also treat uh, other people's books as kind of like literature review. So I think of those personal experiences people have had as their own qualitative data. So really, I'm, I'm going to let everyone in on a secret. Um, my my big thing is I just aggregate data. I don't call it, I didn't used to call it that for a long time until I started getting more involved with people who like do science with their lives, like I almost did. And I realized, oh yeah, that's, that's, I'm doing, I'm doing meta-analysis. That's, that's all it is. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> which sounds really unmystical, but that's really what any of us are doing with our magical practices when we are designing rituals and carrying them out. It doesn't mean that everything in science is, everything in magic is scientific, because if it were, we wouldn't call it magic. Mm. It's decidedly not science. But if we approach it from that perspective, I think we get the best results and we get repeatable results. Mm. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I wanted to ask as well, since we're sort of touching on it, crystal myths, what other ones are there that you're aware of that sort of pervade through the witchy community? Oh, there, there are so many. Um, well, here's one that exists in two forms, two, two opposing voices, which one is right? I guess it depends on what you like, but um, bigger is better or size doesn't matter. You know, have your pick, whichever lane you're in. 
Um, but you know, if we want to use physics as the model for how we might understand how crystal energy works, the larger the mass of that oscillator, you know, they, they do resonate at very specific frequencies one might imagine. And if that's true based on what they're made out of on a physical level, it's got to be true in a metaphysical kind of sense too. So um, two things happen with this. Um, you know, firstly, the the amplitude or like the volume of its energy will increase with size. Mm -hmm. But bigger isn't better, it's just louder. And, you know, louder isn't better. Louder is just louder. If I want to be heard from across the street, I got to shout. But if I'm doing work right here, I can whisper. So it's kind of the same with our tools. No matter how much you think someone's heart chakra needs a 45 piece of 45 pound piece of rose quartz, it's not the right tool for that job. Mm -hmm. Like you can't lay that on someone's chest. So, you know, bigger is not inherently better, mm -hmm. um, but also size does matter. So both of these things are both true and not true at the same time. And the, the other kind of side effect of this kind of ties into this idea of the vibration of crystals, the frequency of crystals, you know, high frequency is better. Um, but, you know, frequency is also a function of mass. Think of a string on a harp that's that's really visible because, you know, it's got the short strings at one end and the long strings at another, or if you open up a piano, same kind of deal. And the highest frequency is produced by the shortest strings, the ones with the least amount of mass. They vibrate faster because there's less of them to vibrate. So, you know, when we think about these high high vibration stones and we're talking about frequency, um, what, what we're getting is totally wrong. We're actually talking about the changes in our consciousness in response to the vibration, which may actually be inverse in some cases. So the bigger something is, the lower its vibration. Literally, it vibrates more slowly because it's like the longer string on the harp. And there's so um, much of it to do. Right. And the other part of that is when our consciousness increases, for the most part, its frequency decreases. You know, our, our normal beta brainwave state is faster. It has more cycles per second than the alpha state, than theta and delta. Um, so as those things slow down, as the vibration literally decreases, our consciousness goes up. So those things don't work the way people think they do. And, you know, that's kind of an illustration about how we get the science wrong, which is fine when it's a metaphor. So if you embrace it as the metaphor, it can be pseudoscience. That's fine. Um, but, you know, when we try to couch things in decidedly unscientific terms, but assert that is fact, then we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot and it, it makes it harder to dialogue with others who maybe aren't of the same persuasion. I think this is fantastic. And it is really eye-opening. And I love that harp example. And that is the inverse idea. It's just like singing to me. It's, it's really, really cool. So that's wonderful. On the idea of size as well, what I want to ask about, what about shape? Mm. There's a lot about, you know, I, I use different shapes for different things. So I might use a, a generator or something that, that is pointed for something that I want to, you know, if I'm, um, what is the word when you have a crystal grid and you want to make it turn activate, it on? Activate. There we go. Yeah. Turn on your crystal grid and activate it. I might use a generator stone um, or I might use pointed ones for different things or, you know, really specific purposes. But then, you know, we have sometimes there are little carved stones like little animals. Uh, there might be circles, palm stones, all of that. Does that have an effect on how it's used? I do, I think so in my craft, but that's me. What's your opinion? So there are a couple factors at play with this. You know, first and foremost, from, from the model that I use to explain crystal energy as, as best as we can through that 
science-y, science-ish lens. Um, the primary drivers of a crystal's energy are things like its makeup. What, what ingredients does it have inside it? What is its crystal system? In what form do those ingredients come together? What is its formation process? What events brought it together? And then, you know, there are lesser things like its hardness, the way it interacts with light, maybe some weird mechanical or electrical stuff it does. Even color is somewhere on that scale. Um, but, but nowhere in there do, do we see as like the, the shaper of its fundamental signature, we'll say, is, is shape. So given that kind of premise, shape doesn't change the fundamental energy of a crystal, but it does influence the way it's distributed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we have a sphere, it only has one surface and every, all parts of that surface, as long as it's polished well, are equidistant from the center of its mass. So its energy is going to kind of move out in gentle waves in all directions at once. I often say that when I use a sphere or a circular stone or wearing a crystal beaded bracelet that is actual, you know, little circles, it feels a little bit gentle, like a little bit softer. That's how it feels to me in terms of its energy um, rather than a crystal chip bracelet, which is kind of a little bit more higgledy-piggledy in a way. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, I do find that as well, that sort of gentler, more even tone that it brings. For sure. You know, when we have points, whether they're natural or or put on there with some skilled or unskilled lapidary work, um, we're adding a directional focus. So, yes, shape matters, but but less than those other things. And it's a lot like listening to the same piece of music. You can see my music background, can't you? Uh, the same piece of music through two different sound systems. Uh, your favorite song sounds different when you listen to it streaming on your cellular device on YouTube versus when you're in your car or when you're in surround sound, right? So the um, orientation of those speakers, the capability of them, how it distributes energy and what is sound but energy, um, that shapes our experience, but it doesn't change what the song is. So, you know, the, the shape of the crystal is like, what is the speaker like? How does it project? Which parts are getting projected better than others? And the, the other component of this is not purely energetic, at least not energetic through the front door. It's kind of a backdoor thing. And it involves relationship. The shape of things has symbolic meaning that we agree to. Um, sometimes that's a personal thing. I can say that, you know, an owl means something to me that doesn't mean the same thing as it does to you. And then there are kind of larger interpretations that might vary depending on culture of origin or what our practice looks like, um, at what point in history we live. So all of these things can be true at the same time. And when we add that symbolic layer, then it's the relational aspect. It's not just what is the crystal's energy. It is how do we receive the energy filtered through the lens of its shape? How does the crystal plus the symbolism come together to create something bigger? The energy of the stone hasn't changed, but the way we perceive it has. Yeah, I teach, because I teach uh, divination, so psychic divination, symbols are a huge part of that um, in every different form of, of divination. You, you have to deal with symbols and psychic work as well. And one of the big things in my symbolism module is we have traditional symbolism or universal symbolism, and that is that universal idea that an owl would mean wisdom. 
Um, but then there is personal symbolism, which is, well, maybe you hit an owl with your car one day and so you are sad when you see owls. And your personal symbolism with owls is grief. So then your symbol is slightly different in the way that you interpret it when you get that symbol in your psychic work. So, yes, I totally get that aspect. And, yeah, same idea. I haven't really thought about it in terms of how we would then perceive crystals, even if they're not carved into a figurine, but just, you know, pointed versus you know, spherical versus in a pyramid or however it's going to be. So uh, that's a really interesting insight and a way to sort of bring that teaching, I guess, all the way through as well through the rest of my practice, which is wonderful. So you're full of amazing insights. <laughs> Blowing my mind. Um, now, the other thing, so we've talked a couple of myth parts of crystals. What about crystal fakes um, and things that are sold as crystals but may not be? What's your take on that? Well, I mean, we follow each other on Instagram. You might see that I... You have a class coming up. I, I approach this subject a lot in life. I try to use it as a teaching opportunity for a lot of reasons. Uh, never to make people feel bad for what they buy, what they like, what they might sell, what they experience. The, the preface to the conversation we're going to have is use the tools that you enjoy or that you feel called to, or that you have accessible. But we should know what those tools really are because that shapes the experience we're gonna have with them. If someone sells you a beautiful piece of flawless, transparent material that has been meticulously cut and faceted into this precision shape and you believe that it is a flawless diamond, well, I've got news for you when it ends up being like leaded glass. Um, are they both beautiful objects? Yes, but they don't have near the same composition, structure, hardness, diaphanity, like everything about them is so different. And if those kind of material things inform the energy of our tools, then we should know what material it really is. So people say fakes when they don't always mean that in the crystal world. Like people refer to as heat-treated citrine, like we talked about earlier, as being fake. Well, it's it's very much a real stone, a naturally occurring stone, but it has undergone a treatment. So the first category we've got to talk about are treatments. Treatments can be as gentle as heating them very slowly or rapidly. Um, we could dye them, we could impregnate them with something to make them more stable, something like turquoise. Most turquoise is kind of crumbly, so it gets helped so it can be preserved. You can irradiate things with uh, you know ionizing radiation uh, that often, for me at least, leaves things that don't feel so healy feely um you can coat them with other substances are there crystals we can buy that have radiation on them so by the time we buy them they there's no like background radiation that could make us sick like a smoky quartz for example there's there's a fair amount of irradiated artificially irradiated smoky quartz on the market but the source of that radiation isn't going to make the stone radioactive, if that makes sense. These are these are two different things. We're describing a, an energetic phenomenon and then a state of being. So they're not inherently radioactive, although there are some minerals that are. You're not likely to come across many, at least none that you should worry about in your average store. Um, but you know that's that's the treatment piece. And what we need to know about treatments is that when we're introducing a foreign substance to a natural stone, we are changing something about it. We're changing its composition. We're doing something. And you might appreciate that change or you might not. You might find that it enhances or you might find that it inhibits. And some, you know, I, I have strong opinions about some of that, but I'm, I'm going to let you kind of suss that on your own. Then we have things that are synthesized. 
So a synthetic piece of quartz is chemically, structurally, optically, electromagnetically identical to natural quartz, but we grew it ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's like the difference between ice that falls from the sky in the form of snow or hail or sleet versus the ice cubes in your freezer. It's the same substance. Now they look and feel different. So synthetic crystals do feel a little different to natural ones. I, I think of it kind of like a stained glass window with no light on behind it. It is a beautiful tool. It has energy, but it's not quite the same as that natural one, which has the, you know, the golden hour sunshine coming through and, and, and bringing it to the new level. Um, synthetic stones might be really useful to you. You might also just find them a little empty. They, they don't quite have as much personality as most natural stones. And then we've got our simulants. So simulants are the ones that we probably should look out for mm -hmm. because simulants do not have the same composition or structure or any of the other defining features of their natural counterparts. Simulated malachite could be poured resin and plastic. Mm -hmm. um, simulated quartz is usually just glass, sometimes plastic. Uh, we could have all sorts of things that are simulated that aren't like the real deal. And in most cases, because they don't even remotely resemble the material they're su supposed to substitute for, they don't carry the same energies. Mm -hmm. Could we tap into the archetype of it, the kind of idealized energy that's out there and use this as a focal point? Yes. But that's, that's pretty advanced work when you could just go buy a piece of amethyst instead of a purple piece of glass, right? Um, so I would encourage people, buy the tools you want. If you love opalite, I'm not here to shame you for that. But I'm here to let you know what the difference between opal and opalite is so we don't mistake one for having the properties of the other. Yeah, yeah. I was literally thinking opalite. I was like, I need to ask for opalite. Because I, I know that it is usually just glass. Like, it's a very pretty one. My daughter absolutely loves it. But, I mean, it's not sold as opal, right? It's I, I don't feel deceived in that. But then when they call it opalite, it sounds like a crystal. So a lot of people do see it and they're like, oh, this is a really pretty crystal. And I'm like, you know, like I think it's great. I think in terms of like kid-friendly crystals, I actually think some of the, I'm not even going to say the, the treated ones, the ones that are, helped along a little bit like your aura quartz and and things like opalite and they just make them really kind of magical and they make me think of fairies and decorating fairy gardens they're really pretty I don't personally use them in my own practice um, some people could I think kids are really drawn to them because they're really pretty um, but I, I yeah I don't feel like opalite is trying to trick me but I do think it does trick a lot of people if you know what I mean yeah. And, you know, even the name is problematic because mm -hmm. up until the 2000s, opalite was actually a term we use geologically, more so gemologically. And yes, there is a difference, but we don't have to split hairs now um, to describe varieties of naturally occurring opal. They just uh -huh. weren't very pretty. So opalite was like matrixy opals, um, no transparency, no play of color, none of that inner fire. Mm -hmm. uh, and you still find some books out there that that will list that kind of stone as opalite. Um, but nowadays, we tend to avoid it. New publications don't go that route because you would so easily confuse one term for another. Um, so it's okay. Language changes. Um, accepted names in the trade and industry are going to change. It's it's part of life as long as we've got disclosure. So opalite is glass that has one of the optical properties we associate with opal, opalescence, which is the the 
the Tyndall effect, so we call that Rayleigh scattering. When you hold a piece of opalite up, well, first when you look at it, light is shining down from you know any other angle except behind it. It's kind of bluish, milky. Mm. It's yeah. not that hazy appearance like an opal would have, but when you hold it up to the light, it's usually kind of orangey, sometimes yellowy. Um, and that's because in transmitted light, light passing through, we see the real color of the material. But the particles it's made out of scatter light the same way our atmosphere does. So there's no blue pigment in the sky, but it still looks blue. There's no blue pigment in opalite, but it still looks blue for the same reasons. And I think that's really enchanting. Like I, I can totally understand why people love this. I think the physics behind its color are super cool. And there are natural minerals that have the same kind of optical effects. Um, so let people love what they love. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to rain on anyone's parade, but I think disclosure is a really important thing. And so many people buy, you know, cobalt blue glass or bright green glass being sold it being sold as obsidian when it's just glass. Mm -hmm. So obsidian should have quote marks around it or just sell it for what it really is. It's just man-made glass. And if you want to use it, go for it. I'm an animist. There's a spirit in everything. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a spirit in that too. It's different to the spirit of obsidian, very, very different, but that doesn't mean you can't love it. I also feel similarly, like things like, uh, what's it called? Blue, blue halite. I see dyed blue halite a lot and I very rarely see any classification that it's been dyed when it very clearly has. And that bothers me. I'm like, it's fine if you want to change like a color of something but just put a little, it's not blue halide, it is dyed blue halide, or just put a little something in there when, when selling it. And that's, that's the sort of thing that annoys me. It doesn't annoy me that it exists or that we've done anything to it just when it's listed incorrectly. So with your book, you've got a new book coming out. What is the release date for Crystal Basics? So the new pocket encyclopedia will be out in the US around March 7th. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we, we got copies early. It came out for the uh, Tucson Gem and Mineral Showcase in January. So it's slowly making the rounds and distribution a little bit later in other markets. It's got to go by boat overseas to other places, but it's finally here. Yay. And like we're filming this on the 1st of March. Um, well, for me, 28th of Feb for you, because we have a time difference. Obviously, I'm in the future. Um, so far, so good. It's all good over here. But with Crystal Basics, do you include, because um, it's a pocket encyclopedia, right, do you include any of those sorts of um, synthetically or, or man-altered crystals in there? Would you have opalite or would you have aura quartz in there? So I actually have a whole little glossary of these kinds of rocks, a glossary of trade names, artificial gems, and mistaken identities, just to give you a reference for what they really are. So if you come across a name like oh, Hartonite or Atlantisite or Ancestralite, you can find out what its actual makeup is, or in the case of some synthetic things, you can find out what it's really supposed to be. You won't find those kinds of rocks in the directory of 450 stones, because with only 450, yeah. I had to be really mindful about what I could include. My, my wish list was right around 600 stones, so I had to slash it down by 25%. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that involved some... Oh, some hard decisions. I bet, I bet. What is, in saying that, what is your, I know you're not going to have a favorite, but let's say top three favorite stones for you <clears throat> currently because they probably change. I love that you gave me three. So I have three favorites for different reasons. Uh, my favorite to work with therapeutically for my own healing journey has been rhodonite. It's this 
pink stuff that I'm wearing, although sometimes in really, really fine specimens, it can be a deep, transparent red. Here, I'll actually show you a piece. I know our audio listeners won't be able to hear, but um, so that's like a really, really unusual piece to be so transparent. And um, this is a great stone for finding emotional balance and strength, resiliency, fortitude. It's been a good anchor for me. I'm a fairly anxious person by disposition, and I, I find it grounds me in ways that I, I benefit from. My favorite gem, just because, like to look at it is to get lost in it, is petersite. So petersite is a cousin of tiger's eye but it forms under more complicated circumstances. And uh, gemologically, the patterns that it displays are referred to as chaotic chatoyancy. So chatoyancy is like the cat's eye effect, that kind of velvety sheen that we see in tiger's eye, for example. Mm -hmm. But imagine you had a bunch of tiger's eye in different colors and broke it up and rearranged all the pieces. So they swirled and all the, the fibers within it were in lots of different directions. It kind of looks like swirling storm clouds in some cases. So it gets the nickname Tempest Stone and helps us weather the storms in life. It's also a stone of personal truth. It has this very kind of scorpionic energy of like pursuing that inner truth and not letting anything get in the way of it. So it can be kind of a- That's intense. Yeah, there's there's an intensity behind it. Mm. Uh, but my favorite thing to collect, like if I could only collect one species from now until the end of time, it would be quartz. Yeah. And that's going to include all the colored varieties. But I love quartz. I love weird quartz. I love finding things that have unusual inclusions or secondary minerals that grew on the surface or underneath it or weird surface patterns created by unusual events uh, in its history. So I... I, I one day want to do something with all these really weird and unusual quartz crystals that I've got. I, I have a picture of what that might look like. It's too soon to speak it into existence, but um, yeah, I could I could collect nothing but quartz until the end of time. And it was my first proper mineral. So I think that that probably tracks. There's a special bond there. Yeah. I really love some of the ones like um, tourmalated quartz, I think it's just so cool when you can see it, like little spears going through it. It's, it's fascinating to see. Um, I'm going to share as well with you my top three. Oh, please do. Currently, my top favorite crystal, the one that I wish I could have gigantic pieces of and surround myself in and wear all the time is dioptase. But it's very pricey. <laughs> and I actually find it really hard to find. The main places I see it are at the museum. And I'm just like at the window going, oh, please. It's so gorgeous. It is this beautiful... Oh, I don't even know, like green tone, but it's kind of emeraldy. Like there's a touch of blue in it as well. It's just deep and dark and like a deep, dark green sea is kind of how it makes me feel. It's really cool. Do you have any in your collection? Oh, yes. I adore dioptase. It's probably my favorite copper mineral. I, I really dig copper minerals. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think it is just pure magic. I have the tiniest, tiniest little piece of it. It's so not enough, but it, I, especially here in Australia, I find it very rare to see in crystal shops or anything. Even my wholesaler doesn't, I haven't seen them have any forms of dioptase as well. So it's not an easy one to come across. Um, the other one that I've been really loving recently, and it was one of those ones that I came to later. At first I was kind of like, no, nah, whatever, is fluoride, specifically rainbow fluoride. And I've got a little piece here. Are you about to hold up a piece as well? Uh, sorry for the noise. I've got a couple here on my desk. 
Ooh. So I've got this um, greeny tone. Oh, I'm really in the greens, aren't I? Can't even see because the light is like behind, but it's, I've got the light behind my camera at the moment. So it's shining through to me. It looks gorgeous. But I've actually used it in, um, so the novel that I'm writing, I've utilized a little bit of crystal uh, magic in there. It's a little bit, it's a fantasy, right? Supernatural fantasy. It's a little bit supernatural. Um, but it's it's really cool because I've tried to use the actual way we would use these crystals in our everyday real practice and made it a real big thing doing fantastical things with the same properties. It's, sounds confusing. It's going to be amazing. Come and share it with you all when I finish it. But yes, fluoride I've been really, really loving um, recently, uh, especially for focus and things like that as well, which is why it sits here on my desk. And the one that always has my heart and soul is going to be black tourmaline. Um, I've said black tourmaline and you know what? It's black obsidian. And I had a question <laughs> earlier and I was going to ask you if you prefer black tourmaline or black obsidian because I find people swing between the two. And so as soon as I said, I was like, don't say the wrong one. Out, it pops out of my mouth. Black obsidian is my favourite. I do have lots of black tourmaline as well, but black obsidian. I have a black obsidian scrying mirror, which... I adore and a huge big raw chunk that is super sharp on all of its edges and I love that about it um so yeah that's that's my third favorite I do a lot of work with obsidian I I joke but it's not really a joke obsidian is the rock that made me a writer mm. oh it was a just like an intellectual exercise in my corporate gig, I started collating some some research and coming up with some ideas. And I'd wanted to be a writer for a long time. I didn't think it was ever really going to happen. And then out came this outline for what kind of vaguely looked like a book, starting with this one chapter on Obsidian. And I thought, well, my next day off, I'm just going to sit down and start. And like 10 days later, I had a whole chapter. And I, as many times as I started and stopped writing in the previous decade, I'd, I'd never accomplished anything like that. And I thought, I'm going to keep doing this. What what should come after Obsidian? But Obsidian was this initiatory experience oh. for me that, that really brought me to where I am. And it was um, the start of my very first book, The Seven Archetypal Stones. It's right there. It opens with a chapter on Obsidian, subtitled The Spear and the Mirror. Mm, yes, I love that. Um, now, if anyone doesn't know, uh, so it was often used as a weapon back in the good old days and because it is very sharp. Also, surgical tools is uh, a way that they used it. Uh, it is, I'm sure I've chatted with Kathleen about it maybe. I'm not sure in season one, but it is a form of um, like lava glass. It Actually, when you were talking about Moldavite, I was like, we've got like space glass and then we've got like lava glass. It's really interesting. I, I wonder if they've got many similarities other than that. But for me, I find it yet yeah, initiatory. Absolutely. Uh, I think they used it as dragon glass in Game of Thrones as well. So that was, they were showing it off as, but it's, it's also quite intense. I think some people really shy away from it uh, or find its energy is a bit too overwhelming. Um, which is why I was going to ask you the question today, do you like tourmaline or obsidian? Because black tourmaline, I find almost similar vibes, but softer, like it's softened somehow. It is, and I don't know why, and I don't know if you have an answer for that. What do you think? Oh, I've got a handful of answers. So I'm, I'm an obsidian kind of guy. I love tourmalines. I have tourmaline here on the desk because it's a good one for the work that I do here in this space, but you're going to find obsidian all over the rest of this room. Um, so obsidian is unstructured. It's a natural glass. Glasses by the very nature are non-crystalline. Uh, tourmaline is a proper mineral, so it has a 
discrete crystal structure. We, we can you know, map that out. There are models of it. I'm not the guy to draw it for you, but someone with a sophisticated computer program can. We can't do that with obsidian because it, it doesn't have long range order. It is made out of a rhyolitic lava. So lava that given enough time and space could have cooled into rhyolite, which is the counterpart to granite. Granite forms when lava cools in the earth. Rhyolite is the same ingredients when it cools out of the earth, so it cools more is, quickly. Is that the type of, because um, when I think of like lava rock, it's the very light, airy, bubbly, uh, sometimes used in jewelry to put essential oils on. And yeah, I think we had it in our garden growing up, like big rocks just as like little feature rocks. So is that, so that what that is? So that kind of stuff is usually basalt. We would call it scoriaceous basalt because it's got all those little bubbles or vesicles in it. Um, but uh, that's that's got more magnesium in it than like rhyolite would have, which is high in silica. So um, if it cools too quickly, even for rhyolite to form, you know, discrete crystals, feldspars and quartzes and micas and other things, then it becomes glass. So if we zoom in, if we look at a cluster of molecules, we have something called short range order. You can look and see this is like a proto crystal just beginning to form. But then when you zoom out, you're like, oh, never mind. It doesn't connect anything. It's not a crystal. So for me, if we look at the clues in the physical makeup of obsidian, it gives us clues as to its spiritual action. And obsidian, from a material perspective, we could classify actually as a liquid. It's a super cooled liquid because it's a glass. So it's like it doesn't have enough water crystals yeah it doesn't have enough structure to be classified as a solid according to some material scientists mm. but given that it's like halfway between the state of what it could be and that state of pure potential it has one foot in the void and one foot in manifest reality so it takes us to that you know pre-birth stage that pre no. Yeah, it, it is a very liminal stone. It forms at the threshold of the underworld and the overworld. It forms at the threshold sometimes of land and sea and sky. It It is used in liminal ways as grave goods. So people could use it to journey back in the afterlife. It is this stone of cutting open the boundary between this world and the next. And naturally, that means it's going to be... Um, intense. And the other thing about it is that reflective quality, right? We carve mirrors and other things out of it, but they don't quite reflect like a metallic mirror would. It's not, you know, full color. It's a ghostly image. It's a shadow. Mm -hmm. So obsidian has this ability to reveal what's underneath the surface. It doesn't just reflect things at surface level. It shows us the echo behind it, the shadow self, the mess in our psyche. Think of obsidian as that really honest friend with no filter who always calls you on your stuff right they look you up and down they're like really girl and you're like mm. but you integrate that wisdom they've offered you you see the truth through objective eyes you're like you're right i'm gonna fix this thing and then you feel great because you did it mm. so if we're not willing to have that level of transparency um honesty um unabashed honesty then obsidian can feel challenging to work with especially when we're we're really trying to operate from those other parts of our psyche and not look at what we swept under the rug. Mm. Oh, I love all of that. Now, you wouldn't have heard it yet because it hasn't been released at the time that we're recording this, but at the time that this episode goes out, it will already be out there. So if anyone listening has listened to my episode with Mortalis, where I basically discovered that I'm a necromancer and didn't realize it, 
And a lot of what Nicholas was just saying there about Obsidian is ringing true for the underworld aspects that I've obviously been unknowingly dabbling and drawing in uh, for a while now. That doesn't surprise me that this has been my favourite stone for years and probably was almost that initiation into me actually saying, you know what, I am a witch and I will use that term because it was probably about the same time that I purchased that that I really, you know, solidified this practice and stepped into this world. So that's really fascinating. I love that. That's wonderful. I, I love it too. I, I can't wait to listen to that episode. Oh, it's, it's really good. I wonder as well if people have their top three stones and what that can tell us about them. Like obviously that's going to tell I think quite a lot and I think people's stones do change. One thing I would like to know just before we close out today with um geomancy have you ever dabbled in that in terms of divination through rocks or stones or anything like that so like traditional geomancy is is not the thing i'm really skilled at like i i understand how it works to a certain degree you know you generate the figures and out of that you get you know all these other formulas um and i love how formulaic and almost scientific it could be uh, but it's just one more symbol set that I haven't had time to learn but there are other divination systems that I've used that involve rocks and minerals um, as a fairly young person I'd say my first foray into that was like crystal omancy or crystal gazing um, scrying and that became a really habitual thing for me every full moon for several years I had one port sphere which is actually in a museum right now um, but that that was my every every full moon ritual. If I did no other magic, I, I did my scrying mm-hmm. um, in my childhood bedroom. And then, uh, you know, there are oracle cards that are built around crystal symbolism and imagery. I've got more than is probably healthy, um, but only a handful that I've like really truly worked with, including ones that were made by um, a mentor of mine, the author formerly known as Naisha Ozian. She's since retired. Um, but that, that was a deck that was really kind of formative to me. And then there are things like kind of like sortilage or casting lots, you can you can do similar things with stones, whether you're casting them on um, a template, we'll say, of varying mm-hmm. shapes or sizes or choosing them seemingly at random. Um, there's so many different ways that you can work with them that way. So I've, I've experimented with a handful of different divination techniques and sometimes they teach classes on it too. And it's kind of fun to see um, how foundational stone is across all these different magical and spiritual avenues it is something that has worked its way into every practice and sometimes it's just quietly in the background because we're always in the landscape right doesn't matter what where you are the land is underneath you there's escape to that land so rock is everywhere so in a sense there's no spiritual or mundane thing we can do that isn't somehow shaped by it yeah and even mundane things that people don't think are applicable things like our using our phone and our computers which have quartz in them and that's I think that's magical what it can help us do like it's amazing and it's scientific as well so yeah it's wonderful I think it is everywhere you're right absolutely excellent so for people who are wanting to get their hands on your crystal basics encyclopedia pocketbook one Where can they find that? Where's the best place for them to grab it once it's fully out in the world? 
Well, definitely check out your local bookstores, your indie occult and metaphysical retailers. If they don't have it, I'm sure they'd be happy to order it for you. Um, but you can find it through all the major retailers online, whether that's you know here in the States, places like Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Waterstones if you're in the UK. And I'm, I'm not sure where the hip trendy places are in, in um, Australia, but I'll look that up so I can answer that question for people. Um, but any anywhere you find it, please feel free and grab it. My, my motto is every copy sold is a good copy sold. You, you don't have to buy directly from me. You don't have to buy from one place. Just use what is available to you. Do what is the most accessible thing for you, whether we're talking about finding the right stone or finding the right resource to help you work with the stones. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And in the book, just before we go, is it basically like a, this is the stone and this is what it's made up of and this is how it's often used or how like how much information is there on each of the stones? So there are two stones per page, which means there's not a whole lot of space, but up at the top under the name, you're gonna get its chemical composition, crystal system, formation process, and hardness. If that doesn't mean anything to you, that's fine, but the book does tell you how to interpret at least some of that. Um, and then you get the magical correspondences, the chakra correspondences. You can look at planets, sign of the zodiac, and elements for every single one. And then it's broken down by uh, physical healing, psychological healing, and spiritual healing, a handful of words and phrases. Um, some in greater depth than others. So it's it's a good little reference guide alphabetically from A to Z. And in the back, you'll find some tables uh, for a quick reference, you know, stones for the chakras, for the signs of the zodiac, for the all, all the other fun stuff. So um, it's got basically what you would want at a glance. And if you want to go deeper, I have a big catalog of books. There's There's something out there to help you go deeper. Yeah, I love that. I'm actually going to look up the, uh, what was it, seven archetypal stones, the one with the obsidian at the start. I'm absolutely going to, maybe even if my library doesn't have it, I'll uh, see if they can order it in because they're actually really good at that. And if people don't know, libraries will do that. If you yeah. request a book, they can, and they don't have it, they'll either search the other libraries that they're affiliated with or they'll just order it in. So I've managed to get tons of books ordered into my library and now their little section is growing on on witchy wellness new age sort of section it's really good um so yeah that, that sounds fantastic I just can imagine that being really good for if you're creating your own spells and you're like okay I want to do this or this is the ritual that I want and I maybe I want to bring in Saturn's energy and I want to do this and I want to do this and you could just look up the planetary reference that could be really handy you know which one of these do I have make sure you've got a stone for each of the planets and then you're set for pretty much anything you want to do so that sounds really good perfect well, thank you so, 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 so much. I feel like I have so many more questions in my brain, so I may have to invite you back on to dive a little bit deeper at some point if you're open to that. Anytime. It would be my pleasure. Awesome. Perfect. Well, in the meantime, where can people find you on Instagram and online to book classes and things like that with you? So if you look for the luminous pearl in most places, I'll show up, whether that's Instagram or TikTok or Facebook. I use Instagram the most for sure. My website is also theluminouspearl.com. Um, and I've got a calendar of events there. You'll find you know links to social media and everything um, all over the place. So that way you can find out where I'm going to be and what I'm going to be doing. I've got a, a rich tapestry of online events. And this year I'm really rolling out a lot more in-person stuff now that I'm able to travel. Uh, and I'm really excited for both of those categories of, of fun happenings. Oh, that is awesome. And I'll pop links as well, those key links in the description box below. If anyone doesn't know, pretty much any links or anything I talk about in any episode, it's always going to be linked down there. And there's tons of 
places that you can go off and run down rabbit holes as well. Uh, if anyone listening would like to book in with me for a tarot or astrology reading, one of my guidance calls, you can do so on my website, suburbanwitchery.com. And I too am doing a lot of classes this year, both in person and virtually, because I know majority of my clients and followers are over in the States as well. So in person is a little difficult from Australia, but I do do those virtually as well. So keep an eye out. There will be different themes coming up throughout the year, as well as everything else that I've got on offer and in the background. If you're not on my email list, you'll need to get on so you can be up to date with all that fun stuff. But otherwise, I hope you have a lovely day, Nicholas, well, evening where you are. And I hope everyone else in the world has a lovely day wherever they are tuning in from. And we will chat with you next time. Thanks for listening.